So the, the title of tonight's talk is The Path of Being Human. And it's actually also the path of the Buddha. That the Buddha's life is actually a template. And it's less about sort of um, the historical facts of his life and more really about the intention um, around uh, the stories, the archetype that he represented. And I know that, you know, in our invitations around mindfulness, we invite you progressively to let go of the story, to drop beneath the story, to let go of the discursive, the personal storyline. And there is an aspect of story, of storytelling, that is a communal practice, that, that there is an aspect of sharing stories that can cross cultures, it can cross genders, cross class, cross orientations, and any differences by reaching the possibility of a shared understanding through story. Even when our experience isn't shared, the story can be shared. The story connects us as individuals to a larger whole. Even when the story might be about separation or pain or suffering. Story creates communities by bridging the differences in our diverse experiences without diminishing each individual's unique capacities. We tell stories to cross both internal and external boundaries that separate. That connection is so beautifully stated by Rachel Naomi Remen, who is a physician and healer and, and master storyteller herself. She writes, hidden in all stories is the one story. The more we listen, the clearer that story becomes. Our true identity, who we are, why we are here, what sustains us is in this story. When each of our stories become all of our stories, when our family stories become the story of the universal family, this too is a practice of interconnection, interdependence, non-self and emptiness. Non-identification is not just a negation of self. It is the infinite embrace of everyone. That, that love of infinity. And in that complexity, in that both and, the, the story of the Buddha not only the story of how he offered his teachings, but that his life itself was a teaching. So that's what I would like to explore tonight. How does the template of his life continue to teach us today? And so, you know, generally, we can divide our physical life into five different stages. Birth, childhood, coming of age, the maturing and aging, and the passing away. So these are um, kind of parallel to five spiritual stages that many people have written about. This is not, you know, new material. Sometimes it's divided slightly differently. But these stages can be called the calling the calling to the path, the departure, 
the struggle, the awakening, and what we will be returning, what we will be doing tomorrow, and that is the return. So, um, the life of Siddhartha Gautama, which is the name of the Buddha before he became uh, awake or fully enlightened, um, the life, his life before um, um, his spiritual calling was he was he was housed in these palatial um, um, abodes with every need that was met, and until the age of twenty nine everything was provided for him periodically, his family had um, portents, predictions that he was destined for great things, even as a as at his birth it was predicted that he would either become the greatest king among humans or the greatest conqueror of suffering and desire. So his father, um, king of the Sakyans, didn't know what the second one meant. So he focused on providing every aspect for him to succeed as the king of, the greatest king of the material world. But despite every training that the prince could have, there was still an unease that underlay his experience. So I'll be weaving his, his story throughout this, um, this talk. So when Siddhartha was seven, the king took him to a, um, uh, a plowing festival, an agricultural celebration. However, his attendants left him uh, under the shade of a tree, for they too were busy watching the celebration. Siddhartha, under the tree, sits and attains the first of the four medita- stages of meditation. In later life, he narrates this incident to one of his disciples. I know that while my father was plowing, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, aloof from the pleasures of the senses, aloof from the unskilled states of mind, entering the first meditation, which is accompanied by initial thought, is born of aloofness and is rapturous and joyful. And while abiding therein, I thought, could this be the way to awakening? This is at the age of seven. There was that voice, which he eventually forgot. And, you know, just to reflect on your own path, where where was your path before you actually entered these teachings before you came into contact how was it for you in your palace trying to achieve happiness where did you try to get your desires met whether it was internally or externally whether it was Um, acting them out, or whether it was just in your mind? How How was it to try to satisfy your desires or your goals? And did those actually lead to happiness? And for how long? One doesn't just hear the calling once, of course, and neither did the Buddha. So in the Majjama, it's, it, 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 there's another story before his, his um, going forth into the spiritual path. Before my awakening, when I was still an unwa- unawakened bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, this household life is cr- a crowded, dusty road. It isn't easy living in a home to lead the holy life that is totally perfect, totally pure, a polished shell. What if I, having shaved off my hair and beard, putting on the ochre robe, were to go forth from the home life into the homelessness? Going forth, that was the metaphor for letting go, renouncing, 
into the, the spiritual life. The calling gets stronger. And eventually, as, you know, even though he um, set aside some of the earlier voices within him, even though some of those voices were forgotten, the voices that we know, that which we don't actually go through, that which we repress or deny, actually come, become stronger in our, our experience. And so... Um, Uh, Prince Siddhartha, at one point, even in this protected environment, encountered what are called the four messengers. So even though the king wanted him to be um, uh, secluded from anything that would have caused um, harm to the prince, he went out with his charioteer one day and... um, came across a person who was aging and decrepit. And he had never seen anybody who was that old or that infirm. And he asked his charioteer, what, what, who is this? And the charioteer says, we will all be like this. This is, this is an elderly person. And it puzzled Siddhartha. And, and um, uh, it... It, un, it disoriented him, and he went back to the palace. On his next trip out of the palace, he came across again with his charioteer, a person who was ill and sick. And he had never seen anybody in this condition either. Again he asked, and he was received an answer that, that um, we too will experience illness and sickness. And Siddhartha was stunned by this aspect of suffering. The third time he left the palace to go into the city, he um, came across a person who had died, a corpse. And this he had never seen before. And again, the charioteer um, explained to him that all of us at some point will pass away and be like this corpse. And this really disturbed the prince. Who or what are our messengers? What, what initiated your call to awakening? What called you into this practice? For some of us, and some of the stories that you've shared in our meetings, some of us, it may be the illness or, or um, uh, passing away of a dear one, or our own infirmity or, or illness. A transition in a in a relationship or a job or the bottom of an addiction. And this is disorienting enough so that we look at our lives again to ask ourselves, who are we and why are we here? This re-looking at our life, this, this um, respecting our life anew, you know, this word respect is related to spectacles. It's literally in, in, in its root, the meaning is to, the willingness to look again. The willingness to look at our lives again. What is going to truly create those conditions of freedom and happiness? What are the important questions beneath the busyness of our distracted lives? Those questions are always with us. I remember that one of you know, the, the callings that I had forgotten, but as I came into practice, I remembered. I was um, 
I was nine in a growing up in a subdevelopment of of uh, it was a, basically a Levittown in on the East Coast, and it was a primarily white neighborhood. But I had already, you know, encountered um, the issue of race and the difference, and so I, I knew that I knew the experience of of um, exclusion, and um, and we had next door neighbors, two older boys about my age, and they had a younger. Uh, da- uh, um, uh, sister, um, who was maybe three or f- maybe four, four or five at the time. And at one point in time, I saw Rachel across the street, the the young sister, being bullied by these other two guys, not not much older, maybe seven. So, you know, she was four, they were seven, I was probably nine. And I went up to the guys and I said, how would it be if someone did that to you? (laughs) And that's all I said. (laughs) And I took her hand and I brought her back to her house. And I didn't know this, but the family was looking out the kitchen window. (laughs) And, you know, they were really like, they were thanking me and... And, and right after the thank you, the response from the family was, we are going to beat the crap out of those guys. We are, you know, how dare they? And there was something in me that said to myself, this is not right either. <laughs> what is happening? And... You know that was that was actually a um, that was actually a dissonant experience of of how to how do I hold this as a nine year old? And then again, I forgot, or other things came up. The Buddha came upon a fourth encounter when he went into the city, and it was a renunciate, uh, a man walking in robes very slowly with mindfulness. And the question again rose, what if I, having shaved off my hair and beard, putting on the ochre robe, were to go forth? Would this lead to happiness? And so the aspect of the great calling the calling to our hearts throughout our lives gains momentum so that there's an actual departure. That is the metaphor of him leaving the palace. Siddhartha was now nearly 30 and the moment of his final decision was imminent. His father, the king, had already begun preparations for the crowning of his heir. And in seven days, Siddhartha would be enthroned. The king took every precaution to prevent his son's flight and even mobilized all the Sakyan people capable of bearing arms to guard the palace exits. The next night was a full moon. When everything was quiet and still, Siddhartha again stood by the open window and the mysterious voices were irresistible. The angels in the sky, all the people on the earth were urging him to his mission. He could resist his vocation no longer. The moonlight streaming over the marble bed showed him Yasodhara, his wife, sleeping soundly on their golden bed. He drew near and gazing into her exquisite face asked himself, how can I leave her? He returned to the window and the persistent voices seemed to be louder than ever. His love for Yasodhara impelled him to deafen his ears to their crying. And yet he heard the voices of the angels saying, O Siddhartha, have you forgotten your mission? Did you not promise to find the great law which will give this sorrow-sick and death-stricken world nirvana and peace? 
Backwards and forwards, he paced several times to the window. His soul was bent on the voices and he longed to leave the palace. You can feel how difficult the departure is. This is not about it's easy. It's not about just doing it. It's not about, you know, um, not, not feeling the pull of both worlds. He came back to the bed and knelt at his foot and whispered, my poor innocent Yasodhara, I am leaving you tonight. Will you think me unkind? Yasodhara, love has united us. The bond is strong. It will never break. My poor wife, I can foresee your suffering. But it is the law of peace that I am going to find. And if I succeed, we shall meet again. Love has been sweet in our lives and this love shall never cease. Forgive, forgive your Siddhartha. 33 gods descended from the sky and put all of the city's inhabitants into such a profound sleep that no sound whatsoever would awaken them. And to be even safer, they held the the hooves of the horses in their hands to soften the pounding on the ground to help Siddhartha jump over the wall of the palace. According to the traditional reckoning, he was now 29 years old, and this was the beginning of his six-year quest and struggle for awakening. It is from this experience of the four messengers that Siddhartha embarks on the great departure, the great going forth. Each time we come into retreat, we depart. We depart from the routines of our lives. Each time you can feel that, and I wanted to read that story from, from the Buddha and Yasodhara because it is no different from us leaving our families, our jobs, our partners, our pets, our routines. And each time we depart, we depart from our habitual conditioning, which Bhante talked about last night around greed, hatred, and delusion. One definition of awakening, of enlightenment, is simply, it's not this rarefied state that we get to, it's simply the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. That is what awakening that is what the awakened heart and mind experiences. So not unlike Prince, the Prince Siddhartha, we have to make that effort to go forth, even into this retreat, making the arrangements, getting caught in our obligations, even in, up until the last moment and for longer retreats, it even takes more of this gestation, this preparation. You don't just go into a month-long or two-month-long or three-month-long retreat. It actually took me five years to prepare going to Thailand for six months. And, you know, part of that process was negotiating with, with family and... and um, uh, figuring out job situation and who was going to pay the rent. Many of you know, because uh, you have known me for a while, but before I went to Thailand to ordain, I had really long hair. And I had, I had really long hair. I went to Thailand when I was 50. I've had it since I was 17. And my mother was always on my case please cut your hair, please cut your hair. You know, you look like a hippie, you look like a hobo, you look like whoever. As soon as I, because I have to ask for their permission, you have to ask for your permission in the Thai lineage to ordain. She says, oh, don't cut your hair. 
And I'm looking at her and, and feeling the attachment. This, this process departure is not clean. It's as messy as our lives. And part of the mess is, is that the departure is entering the unknown. The departure is what separates the known in our lives from the unknown. And it's a practice to walk in uncertainty. The search for security is really a search for control, for knowing what what is ahead. But you know, the knowing part really limits who we can be in this world. We don't learn from what we already know. We actually, the greatest place of learning is in the space of not knowing. Because when I know where my life is going, I am living this narrow bandwidth of what I think it should be. And if I don't know, how many other possibilities are available? What places in your life have you been called into departure? What is the shift between that which you're familiar and that which is uncertain? It may be, again, in relationships or jobs, careers, housing, physical quality of life? Can we live into the unknown aspects? You know, the question even has arisen and we've, we've heard it in the hall, we've heard it you know, in our meetings. What will this retreat be like? Will I be able to do it? Maybe I need to plan my days out. I don't know if people have had that experience of you know, even in the emptiness of the retreat, oh, you know, I have a break at lunch. What do I do? Got to do the shower, got to, you know, that's when Anushka was saying, rearrange my socks. (laughs) How can I do this for so many days? Can we actually just get out of the way and let the life be lived? Get the mind out of the way so that we can just feel the life that's already being lived. The breath doesn't need any extra effort on your part. It's just breathing. Your body is living, your life is living already. And can we be in touch with that truth? The threshold of this great departure opens almost immediately into the landscape of the great struggle. And you felt that because it's not an easy practice. Again, from the Majjama. So when I was still young, black-haired and endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life, having shaved off my hair and beard, though my family wished otherwise and were grieving with tears on their faces, I put on the ochre robe and went forth into homelessness. And this is from Yosadara's life. Her Lord, gone to become the Buddha to seek nirvana, Yosadara falls on her bed and breaks into sobs. You left, resolved, your mind set on being a Buddha. I too made a firm resolve to always be your wife. We made our joint resolves and you gave me your hand. Why then did you leave me today without a word? We were first born in the animal world as deer. Since that life, we too have never been apart. Every birth cycle, I was always your consort. Why then in this life did you go leaving me alone? My eyes are full, my garments wet, tears fall as my husband, nectar-like, I recall. Abandoning our son, I know he has now left. Is there another 
is there another woman in this world that is so bereft? I never kept a secret from you ever. I never let you be troubled. I, once so blessed, now weep inconsolably, inconsolably, woman of a thousand virtues. Your cause, and here's the shift. Your cause was Buddhahood. I sense the signs. And yet, I came with you as your wife every time. Now, let meditation never leave my mind. May the forest fruits turn sweet for you. May men surround you as do bees a flower. May the sun dim his scorching rays for you. May gods create shelters for you as you walk. My Lord never, no longer hears my sad laments. I don't see my golden-hued Lord even in my dreams. Now I too renounce all worldly pleasures and though he has left me, I'll abide by the moral rules. My heavy grief I'll bear however hard. Like the air around me, I'll only think of my Lord. To become enlightened, unswervingly, I'll try till I set my eyes on him again. Our departure involves so much more than just our own practice. We involve our families. We involve our, our communities. And even in, in the difficulty of that, of that departure, there's a goodness that goes, that, that, that connects both Yasadara and, and um, the Buddha's path towards awakening. We all have these departures in our life, whether we are the ones that have planned the departure or that these departures have been thrust upon us. They are still opportunities to discover a path to freedom. Charles Dubot, who is a French critic, said, the important thing is this, to be able to at any moment sacrifice, renunciate, let go, what we are for what we be, can become. Letting go of our, the ideas of our life in order to directly experience the life that's already being lived. And in, the, and in the great struggle, in this aspect of unknown, fear can arise. The, you know, the resistance. And the Buddha also had his own experience with fear. I dwelt in such fear-inspiring abodes which make the hair stand up. And while I dwelt there, I thought, surely this is fear and dread company, uh, com coming. I thought, why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? Why not subdue the fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me? And so he goes and describes the four meditation postures, sitting, walking, standing and lying down and describes sustaining the awareness through the fear and dread. My own first retreats were always about fear. It was, um, I remember having dreams of, of dying. I remember um, in my first long retreat, I wrote my will. <laughs> Because there was this fear. <laughs> there was this irrational fear uh, that it wouldn't be okay. And what I've come to realize, and the fear still comes up sometimes, what I realize is this is the archetypal fear. This is the, the, the fear because 
in order for transformation to happen, there has to be a death. There has to be a passing away. There has to be a letting go of habit in order for a new birth to happen. When um, I was in Thailand and Stephen came over for the ordination and we had the ordination at like 4.30 in the morning and there was, um, you know, the offerings. And then he had to leave. He had represented my parents, offered me the robes. And that afternoon, right after the ordination, he had to leave. And I still remember, you know, it, it, it's like that this, this path is the road and the car was driving off and I was standing there in my robes. He was looking out the back windshield and I felt as if I was suffocating. I felt as if, you know, I just felt my world coming in and, you know, I didn't, it's not that I didn't want to do this experience, because I did in my highest aspiration, but it was, it was so painful and, and I had so much fear about not having this person to depend on. And I had nothing to soothe this claustrophobic suffocation, anything except my practice. Just like the Buddha sort of um, uh, living through the fear and dread. And the one thing that, it, that helped me was that I sensed that this was a teaching this was a teaching that I could use. And four years later, I felt the same thing when I was sitting on my father's deathbed. I felt the same thing, moment to moment. It was a different progression, but it was something I couldn't do anything about. And I, I could feel that suffocation and it was different because I had felt it before. I knew it more and I know it even more now. Thomas Merton wrote, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turned to stone when it's most difficult is, is, is the opening, is the possibility of such an expansive opening if we just bring our mindfulness into our practice. Just meeting the moment for what it is. It's not about fixing it. It's simply about knowing it, being with it. This, this departure is supported by the practice of renunciation. And it's not about renouncing your life and it's not about renouncing the world. It's about renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion. And this transformation can occur both on a personal and a social level. So I recently um, uh, uh, saw a movie about Bishop Jim Robinson. Actually, uh, Anushka and I were at the Gay Film Festival and we saw it. Um, the Episcopal priest who, is, uh, who was a gay man and ordained as a bishop. Um, and he's the only one. And I think this is a familiar experience for many of us, being the only one in a community sometimes. And so the story with, with that, that was told in this, this film, which was incredibly moving, is, is that they have a, a four-year conference every four years in, um, in England that's, that's 
headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury specifically disinvited this one bishop because he was gay and a travesty to the, you know, the, um, the lineage. So he showed up in the area anyway. <laughs> and the archbishop said, no church can invite him to give a sermon. And one church invited him. And he was giving his sermon and one of the parishioners got up and just laid into him. You know, homophobic, vitriolic, you know, verbal harassment in the middle of the sermon. And you could see, you know, sort of the disorientation of, of, of Bishop Robinson. And eventually, you know, the guy was let out and everything. And in the interview afterwards, um, he was asked, so what was that like? And he said, sometimes the harm has to stop somewhere. Let it be with me. Renouncing harm, letting go of harm. Of course, our life is unfair and is getting rid of suffering or unfairness a prerequisite to your freedom? Are there conditions to your freedom? Because there are none. Our concept of freedom is skewed by our cultural conditioning that, that is really about doing whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. That is not freedom. That is a form of addiction to pleasant and, and aversion to unpleasant experiences, which is why the practice of Vedana is so important, just to notice what is pleasant and unpleasant without grasping or pushing away. Freedom doesn't mean to be in a place that has no oppression or struggle or problems. It is, it is freedom is about being in the midst of all of that and having an open heart and a clear mind. That is the invitation of freedom. And we start by letting go of how we think the practice should be. We, we let go of how we think the breath should be. We let go of how the sitting should, should be or the walking should be and just be with it, even if the mind is distracted. This letting go is the dissolution of that second noble truth, the attachment. In the Dhammapada, it's written, let go of the past, let go of the future, and let go of what is in between, transcending the things of time. With your mind free in every direction, you will not return to birth and aging. And so for six years, Siddhartha searched and searched for teachings and teachers who might provide him with the door into enlightenment. He became the disciple of many teachers and he actually was offered to become a teacher in each of those teachings because he surpassed all of those teachers. And he said, this teaching that teaching does not lead to dispassion, to the fading of greed, to the cessation, to peace, to the direct knowledge, to enlightenment. I am not satisfied with this or that teaching. He realized that none of the teachers could show him the way. Have you had your own struggles with different paths, different teachers? How many different practices have you tried, been disappointed, and tried again? How often have we had the thought, 
just show me. Just show me the way and I'll do it. <laughs> Teach me what will enlighten me and I'll just do it. And then there's a disappointment. How do you start anew? How do you find your path anew? The great struggle with his, the, the, the great struggle that he eventually ended up with sitting under the Bodhi tree, realizing that no one else could actually do his practice, that he had to find his own way. And during his efforts, Mara, who is the embodiment of the unconscious, you know, all of the embodiment of the distracted mind, um, sometimes he's called the embodiment of evil, but it's really the unconscious. Mara assailed him with all these torments and distractions, not unlike, you know, whatever distractions come up for us in our sitting, in our walking. Every time we sit on the cushion or chair, we actually sit underneath the tree. His tree. We face the forces of Mara. And we face the universal experience of mind. This is not just about your mind or my mind. It's the nature of mind. And this is what we begin to purify over and over again. Every time you sit, not just the, you know, really calm, wonderful ones. <laughs> but especially the difficult, crappy ones. Those are really purifying this mind. Enraged, Mara amassed all of his unimaginable forces and armies of destruction to arise and attack the future Buddha and force Siddhartha out of his contemplative state. Mara called upon maelstroms of tornadoes and torrential downpours to wash away and drown the meditating prince. But the floods did not dampen him so much as a dewdrop, and the edges of his robes were not even ruffled. There were showers of rocks the size of mountain peaks, and yet they all were transformed into celestial flowers cascading at his feet. After nine such unsuccessful attempts to unseat the future Buddha, the enraged Mara gathered his army of hundreds of thousands and in the background of their screams demanded the Buddha to be, to get out of that seat. You are nothing. You are nobody. That seat belongs to me and me alone. These are my witnesses to my truth. How many times has this happened to us? that we are told we don't belong, or that we're not good enough, or that we tell ourselves that we don't belong, or deserve to be who we are, where we are, without condition. How often do we tell ourselves, even subtly, this message that I can't do this? But then, who else would do it? Who else can live this life? that you have been given. And you, dear Prince, sit alone. Who is your witness? Then the Prince, close to his awakening, undisturbed by any obstacle created by Mara, reached down with the simplest gesture of the middle finger of his right hand, just like what's reflected in the statue behind us. This is the moment in which the Buddha called upon the Earth Mother to be the witness of his inalienable right to his Dharma seat, to his place in the world, to his belonging to this life. And so brilliant was the power of the Mother Goddess when she appeared, Mara and all of his armies were dispelled to all corners of the universe. We all have our Maras. All those messages that we've been given or that, that we give ourselves. And so what supports the dispelling? 
Who do you have as allies? Because the Buddha also didn't do it alone. And I love the invocation of his right hand for support. This struggle opens in its time to the insights of awakening, which, which all of you have experienced. And whether you believe that full enlightenment is possible in this life or not, each insight that arises is an opening into wisdom and compassion. It is the taste of the freedom that the Buddha achieved. And each moment of insight, whether it's small or large, is great. Sopni Rinpoche says, enlightenment is small moments many times. It's just weaving those small moments that can feel so mundane. Sometimes we have these dramatic ahas, you know, like about family vortexes or, you know, uh, um, how what I was doing as a kid is affecting me now. But sometimes it's just like, oh, is that all? You know, I remember some of you, uh, some of you were, are, were sitting out here uh, in the courtyard. I was sitting out in the courtyard and I was just looking at the, the, a leaf falling from uh, a small tree. I cannot describe this even today. I cannot describe this experience because I experience the impermanence and the, and the, and the, and the suffering and the, and the non-identification just in watching that beautiful little leaf tumble onto the ground. And you know, when I tried to describe that to someone, I was really unsuccessful. It was this insight for me. And you've had dozens of them. And this is the weaving of awakening. One practitioner said on a, on a, on, uh, a retreat uh, previous to this, on the second day of his practice, I discovered this whole world inside of myself that I never knew. And we do that. We discover these worlds inside of us that we've always taken for granted or have not seen. And as with all journeys, there's a return. Sati is, one of the qualities of sati is remembering. Remembering to make whole again the return. Retreat and life are not separate. There is no separation from what you're doing here with how we live our lives. And really, what you do here is so needed in our world, in our life. Proust says, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Being able to see life from a larger and larger place. So how are we approaching the return, the re-entry, the transition? Is there some hesitancy? Is there, is there um, um, some fear? Even the Buddha had hesitancy in his return. He became fully awake and he really questioned what he was going to do because he felt there was so much suffering in the world it would be useless to do anything but just be awake. And he almost didn't teach. And he struggled with that with that dilemma and one, uh, a being from the Brahma realm came down and pleaded with him, 
three times. This, 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 this number three is, is a recurring theme. And on the final, um, on the final request, out of compassion for beings, he surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. He saw beings with little dust on their eyes and with much dust on their eyes, with keen faculties and dull faculties, with good qualities and bad qualities, easy to teach and hard to teach, and some who dwelt seeing fear in the other world and blame as well. And when this, he replied, wide open are the portals of the deathless. Let those who hear show faith. And that is how he decided to be of service and teach. Teach those who had little dust in their eyes. And so he continued. He continued by sharing the Dharma, being service in the Dharma. But most importantly is he continued to practice the Dharma even after his awakening, even after the insights. And so the return is really about how do you make this practice your own, for your own life? How do you bring it to your world? There are supposedly 84,000 gates into the Dharma. Which one is the most open for you? For you to walk through? Because really, each teaching leads to all of the teachings. You can feel this from whether it's the, the, the mindfulness practice or the mindfulness of, of what it is that will lead to happiness, which is automatically guides us into the Four Noble Truths. Or whether it's mindfulness as a kindness practice, which automatically guides us into the Brahma Viharas. Each teaching leads to all of the teachings. And so don't be attached to the journey. There will be many of them ahead. The journey never ends. And the problems never end either. The Buddha was fully awake and he had huge problems afterwards. He had backaches, he had stomach problems of which he actually died of. His, um, someone tried to kill him three times. His whole tribe was wiped out in war. It's not that external conditions changed, but he was free. That in the middle of any pain or problems, it's still possible to find the path of the Dharma. that this practice is so much bigger than who we are. And so I'm going to end, I know that I've gone over already, I'm going to end with this weaving of stories that, that, I, that I was first inspired by um, Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest. Um, but I've changed it a little bit to make it more um, resonant with, with our communities. And so the, uh, the lineage of stories begin with Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, the, um, uh, the, the writer and, and, and deep thinker in the early 1800s. And he was very affected. His calling was very affected by um, the death of his first wife of tuberculosis. And so he really, you know, like was deeply uh, investigative of, of Eastern spirituality and and um, uh, and and spiritual practice, and he met Henry David Thoreau um, in the mid 1830s. Henry David Thoreau, you know, as this radical environmentalist, he was also always characterized as as a confirmed eccentric bachelor. Read between the lines. <laughs> the first translation in English of a Buddhist sutra 
was done by Henry David Thoreau in 1844 and published in Emerson's publication, The Dial. And so Emerson was this mentor to Thoreau and um, uh, he suggested to Thoreau that he keep a journal, which I guess was a novel idea at the time. And he did for the rest of his life. His, Thoreau's journal adds up to like 7,000 pages. But nine years after he started the journal, um, he described being arrested for not paying a poll tax. And the previous year, he didn't pay a poll, t poll tax because, um, uh, because African Americans could not vote and also the poor could not vote. So he was protesting by not paying his tax. But this year that he got arrested, he didn't pay because he was protesting the, the war with Mexico. So the story is that um, Emerson went to visit Thoreau in jail. And he said, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau said, what are you doing out there? <laughs> so 18 months later, in 1848, he, he delivers a lecture on this incarceration and calls it the rights and duties of the individual in relationship to government published next year as The Resistance to Civil Government. So Thoreau dies and an anonymous publisher republishes it and just sort of spontaneously changes the name of the booklet and calls it Civil Disobedience. And that's the first time that phrase is coined. Fast forward 50 years. In 1906 and 1907 in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi was at the forefront of the nonviolent resistance to apartheid. He was arrested in January 1908 and one of the books he took was Thoreau's Civil Disobedience. So that quote, he could find arguments in favor of our struggle. And it was Gandhi that coined from civil disobedience to civil resistance. Fast forward another 50 years. So I talked, I alluded to Bayard Rustin, sort of the organizer of the uh, March on Washington for Dr. King. But before that, he has a long, he went to India to study nonviolence. In fact, as he arrived on the day that uh, Gandhi was assassinated. And he studied nonviolence um, uh, that, that was part of Gandhi's life. In 1955 was the, was the beginning of the Montgomery bu boy, bus boycott. And that was also the year that Dr. King's house was bombed. So, you know, even though he was a, at, the, at the time a gay African-American man, which was, it was not a safe environment for him to go into the deep south. He went to uh, Montgomery to advise Dr. King on these Gandhian tactics of nonviolence. Because, as he writes, I think it is fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existence when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. Rustin convinced King to abandon the armed protection. He introduced him to Glenn Smiley, a Methodist minister who studied nonviolence. Smiley asked Dr. King if he knew about Gandhi and gave Dr. King Gandhi's autobiography, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience and the Power of Nonviolence by Richard Gregg. Dr. King identifies these three as the most influential works. 50 years more, and this is near the end of the story. <laughs> Occupy Oakland. And within Occupy Oakland emerges what is very still controversial, and that is the diversity of tactics. 
And what a diversity of tactics means is that people are not wedded to nonviolence. That within this philosophy of diversity of tactics, some people view that violence is a justifiable means. And so at East Bay Meditation Center, we began, we were approached by an Asian American trainer to do Kingian nonviolent conflict resolution during this period. So I want to connect the dots in reverse. You know, from this multicultural Buddhist center in downtown Oakland today, there's an Asian American who is training nonviolence from the life of an African American civil rights leader who was advised by a white Southern Methodist minister and a gay black brother who was influenced by the real life examples of an Indian pacifist who connected the thoughts of an early dissident, probably gay environmentalist. who was inspired by this American spiritualist interested in the teachings of the Buddha. Can you feel how connected our stories are? Of course we are these infinitesimal organisms in this vast play of life. But feeling small or tiny doesn't equate to inconsequential or insubstantial. We are all substantial and consequential contributors to a path towards freedom. Even that anonymous publisher that just happened to change the name of that booklet. These are the archetypal journeys that weave whenever we practice. So for a moment, Forget that this practice is from Asia. Forget for the time being that most of the Western teachers are Caucasian and that the practitioners are white. This face of liberation is painted with the infinite colors of the universe. Our infinite colors and experience. And the breadth of the teachings know no boundaries so where does the practice need to go for you and your communities? This is the invitation of our practice. It winds through our personal lives. It winds through the collective spectrum of our communities and generations and generations of our cultures. And this is something to remember deep in our bones every time, every day that we live our lives. My apologies for the length, I couldn't shorten it. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.